There is nothing wrong with your internet. Do not attempt to adjust your settings. We are controlling the podcast. We control the squealing and the screams. We can make your heart flutter, your eyes blur from tears, or sharpen your mind to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit back. We are in control of what you hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your setting. You are about to experience the awe and mystery known as the female mind. You are now entering the Fangirl Zone. We will continue exploring, discovering new worlds, new civilizations. Welcome to the Captain's Chair, a podcast on all shows in the Star Trek universe on the Fangirl Zone. I'm Richard Dave, and joining me on this mission into the unknown is... I'm Chief Engineer Steve, and today we'll be discussing Episode 2 of Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> this seems, does this seem like it's flying by to you already? Yes. <laughs> it's only two episodes. <laughs> we're already into it. We finished the last show, Lower Decks, and now we're into this one right away yeah. now we're too done i mean that there's so much for them to cover yeah there really is and even though we do get the final burnham and discovery reuniting again yeah it still seems like there's such a long way to go when there's only 11 episodes to do it <laughs> i know <laughs> good luck to them and us yeah <laughs> Do you expect we'll see any deaths this season? I mean, you had a, a theory that one of the characters that has a, a short cameo we discussed on Mike that might be used by Giorgio. <laughs> yeah. But we're talking about Linus. We had a Linus sighting, and Steve mentioned something about uh, Giorgio's interest in his eyes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully she's going to plug him into something and not... <laughs> take him out. And <laughs> take him out and strap him on her forehead. <laughs> Hey, these are great. Thanks, Linus. Yeah. <laughs> no more piano playing for you. And now that's a boomer reference. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, what we do you... hadn't really gotten a Western-ish episode since A Fistful of Datas. So this a Fistful is... of Datas, yes. <laughs> yeah, this definitely. Especially the swinging bar doors. I mean, yes. even 900-something years from where they were. It's got to have those swinging bar doors in a, a dank-looking place. It just it missed the, all the Star Wars aliens hanging around in the, in the cantina band playing in the background. Right, but it was great Probably how not. they showed everybody slowly reaching for their weapons. I know, the slow <laughs> reach. Oh, no, where's the piano player when you need them? Yeah. <laughs> Hitting all the false notes. Yep. <laughs> all right, well, let's get into episode two, Far From Home. Crew of Discovery races to repair their ship after they crash. Tilly and Saru make a first contact looking for Burnham. Yep, and down goes Discovery. Anybody out there? Boomer reference, down go Fraser. Raise your hand out there if you know what down goes Fraser means. You have to Google it. I'm not going to tell you. Anyway, see, did you notice that when this Discovery does crash, (laughs) that it's remarkably in one piece, as opposed to how many times have we seen the Enterprise crash a much bigger? Yes. Doubter, supposedly, ship, and that thing's always in pieces. Oh, looks like we're going to have to build another one. Right. (laughs) Of course, you can't do that in the future. Still, come on. At least not where they're at. 
least. No, I know. And a good Bill went out of ice, maybe. <laughs> not that ice. That ice was... No, not that parasitic. ice. Not parasitic ice. Not, I don't think I'll put that in my next glass of scotch. <laughs> <laughs> the season's second installment picks up soon after a controls defeat at the Battle of Zaya. I think I pronounced that correctly. As we find an incapacitated bridge crew awakening to the dreaded sounds of a red alert in a terrifying sight of an uncontrolled descent towards an unknown world that had a huge gouge in it, too. Yes, they had to fly through the debris of that gouge, so... Including one with trees on it. Yes! (laughs) And of course, it still has a relatively soft landing. I suppose the uh, it wasn't in the manual for uh, the Enterprise to use those, what was it, graviton beams or some type of beam and the deflector? Okay. Anyway, Commander Saru, who who looks great in his job, regains the center seat and rallies his forces. Moment forward, Discovery plummets through a floating-like, myth-like maze composed of segments from the planet's surface. Yeah, if you play uh, like Xbox and the rest, there's always stuff flying around that you have to bounce off of. Right. And it's kind actually, of fun. Yeah, it actually went through one very large piece, which was yeah. awesome. I know. <laughs> so much for those trees. <laughs> yeah. So, as Steve and I spoke uh, off-air just before, we have a little more from the bridge crew. They decide to give them a, a larger role, and in this particular episode, uh, Lieutenant Kyla Detmer expertly navigates the vessel through the icy crash landing, while the show's breathtaking cinema-like visual effect continue to stun our optical inputs, which is true. Yes. They have some great, even at the end when they use the tractor beam, I'm like, that's awesome. I want one. Yes. <laughs> of course, I'd have to get a Starship for it, but whatever. <laughs> but that's amazing. I, I'm glad they don't skimp. And I'm also glad that the bridge crew has a personality now. They, I don't, they weren't going to pay them that much attention to start with the show. The show was going to be almost lower decks-like fashion. Right. Where we find out what a, it doesn't center on the captain. And the bridge crew isn't supposed to have that much personality. But they do now. Well, why not? So uh, with tactical systems, sensors, and the computer communications offline, the bridge officers realize they are unaware of the location in time or space, leaving us wondering just how far they might have ended up from their intended rendezvous with Burnham on Terralisium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, things don't always, when you go through a wormhole, things don't always go to plan. No, neither one of them made it Terralisium. <laughs> yeah. If there is still a Terralisium. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who knows? Right. You know what? I didn't know that uh, Jet Reno was actually going to be, be back in this uh, second year. Right. We watched a whole bunch of teases. Like, where was she? Yeah. What'd you say? Because she's great. I love uh, Tig's uh, sense of humor. Oh, she is it's amazing. The so you, dry. Yes. You need to listen to the Pod Directive podcast yeah. where yeah. they interviewed her. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> uh, she is so funny. So anyway, Reno helps Saru assess the damage and informs the acting captain that repairs will be needed before Discovery can fly again. It, she is the uh, chief engineer, yes or no? She I don't is. think it's she, official, but I think she's acting. <laughs> yeah, because Stamets is pretty much the, the, the what do you call our drive? The drive. Uh, drive. Attend- yeah, Spore Drive. That's his thing, right? He's not really, or maybe he was. I yeah, don't know. It's very possible that he was, but mm. I mean, Jet's <laughs> right up there with him if he if he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like how they, get, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure I'm spread on a different part of the bread, not next to his. Sorry. <laughs> not, that's not the way it works. Yeah. <laughs> so Saru sets the crew to their task for conferring with Ensign Tilly, who manages to confirm that the planet is not Terralisium, but there is life. And the duo's restrained elation over the news of their conflict against control achieved the desired results beautifully, juxtaposes Burnham's fruit reaction from that hope is you, part one. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Burnham just screams. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of go, yeah, well. 
well, we're here wherever here is. <laughs> yeah, that's more Starfleet. Like I, I really did expect that from uh, Burnham last last time, but I think they just wanted to explore her acting skills. That was just a decision they wanted to make. Right. I think. So we check in with the rest of the Discovery crew, and we see Giorgio catching up with Saru and Tilly, revealing that her Terran instincts implored her to take necessary steps to ensure that Leland was truly dead. Yeah. (laughs) So whatever killed him probably didn't completely kill him, and Giorgio just went in and finished the job, I guess. Yeah, she still got some of it on her shoes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So we go to sick bay where Culber perfectly balances his roles as Stamets' physician and partner to guide the engineer out of his medically induced coma. Mm. Considering all that they have endured, the couple's lovely reunion is one of the episode's many highlights. They're so cute together. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> he is Stamets is such a pill, though. Yes. Every time, I mean, uh, why do these people find him so attractive? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Pain in the neck. Now, elsewhere, Dr. Pollard, another crewman that we didn't expect to see, clears Detmer of any concussion systems, yet she's still got this dazed look on her, which is definitely a cause for concern. Yeah, if only we had Rutherford from uh, Lower Decks to help her out. With her implant, yeah. Yes, I know, give her a button to <laughs> depress. Hey, I'm in cowboy mood. That would have served her well in this episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing that also has been bannered around online is that maybe this is something that's not going to end well for our navigator as... Oh, Detmer, yeah. Oh, yes, there's a theory online from the AV Club, from a Zach Handlin. If you read his piece, and I want to give him credit here, he thinks Control may have lived on somehow and maybe it infected her implant. I don't know if he can exist in it, but who knows? Right. It is not good, that's for sure. <laughs> so kudos to Zach for that theory. Yeah. I think that comes under a tinfoil hat theory. But if, if Control does, like, possess her somehow, I wonder if they... Uh, I don't know, force him into a a timeline or traveling through time so he can access himself in the past. Right. Uh, Okay, now I'm really going off the edge. Please continue, Steve. (laughs) All right. Saru, Tilly, and Giorgio chat with Commander Nan, ultimately determining that the away team must visit the nearby settlement to obtain the rubidium that is required to repair Discovery systems. The lack of dilithium readings, despite the presence of warp-capable ships on the planet, puzzles the group as they have yet to learn about the burn and its tragic repercussion. And Mm. more than likely, the colony... Is missing a quarter of its mass because it had dilithium and it exploded. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, uh, even to the point where they had to make come up with these silos to generate oxygen in areas. Right. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting to see if that is actually what happened to it. I want to find out what a work capable ship is like that doesn't use dilithium, but they exactly they, plus, but they need it so badly. Yeah. Now Saru assigns Tilly to accompany him on the recon mission, privately disclosing to the ensign that he believes her to be an excellent ambassador to the future unless she talks too much yeah or stutters (laughs) she's so nervous Yep. Saru gives the order to for the crew to operate in pairs to get Discovery back up and operational, which provides some quality time between several officers. 
Because we see Stamets and Reno revive their both their witty banner and Star Trek's tradition of Jeffrey Tube adventures, while Nan and Giorgio discuss their motivations for leaping ahead in time. Nan's what does that say about Giorgio's uh, series? Yeah, with uh, I know uh, Section Thirty One. Where is that going? I haven't heard anything about it. I'm, I guess they're, I it. think they're about to start production on it, but I don't know how they're going to get her back. Uh, I'm sure she's going to figure out a way. <laughs> Huh. Though, of course, with what she says, I'm not 100% sure about that either. Yeah, I have to come up with a tinfoil hat, hat there to get her into one. the... Yeah. Because huh. non-surprisingly cite Arium sacrifices her inspiration, and Giorgio postulates that leading Section 31 would have been her 23rd century fate and argues that bureaucracy is where fun goes to die. <laughs> Oh, cynical. So cynical. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Even uh, dictatorships use her bureaucracy, if you can call that from her alternate universe where she came from. Yes. <laughs> Somebody's going to run the show. And then we find out the kicker. Oh, and there is also the unsettling revelation that the ice accumulating on the vessel's hull is actually parasitic in nature. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Yeah, I was on Amazon the other day, and I saw this ice cube tray made of little skull. You can make little ice skulls. Right. <laughs> so if I can get some parasitic ice and make it into skulls, boy, what would that do to my scotch, Steve? would <laughs> give it a hell of a bite. <laughs> I'll write down my last words before, yeah. just in case. Anyway, Steve, I hope you wore your spurs yeah. for this episode. <laughs> I'm a cowboy, and this definitely had a Western feel to it. Indeed it did. Yeah. Through until he arrived at a mining settlement with an interior that gives up the rustic Old West saloon vibe. And as long as you ignore the trip through a transport that sends you to the establishment's entrance. I wondered about that. Was that a force field they actually walked through that lets you in there? Or did it actually transport you? Which means they could be on the other side of the mountain or the other side of the planet for all we know. Right. Yeah. I think it was a transporter. Yeah. So, So you had to walk through that cave like cal did that was cal right yeah it was cal and and then boom you're through right hmm. love the swinging <clears throat> so it's not necessarily huh love the swinging doors oh yeah i know even a thousand years in the future from when they were yes. they still have swinging doors oh we talked off air that they, they should have had a cantina band or at least a piano player yeah Anyway, after a brief standoff, the local Corridan named Cal, and every time I see the name Cal, I think of Superman, Cal yes. L, <laughs> as was the last installment's reintroduction of the Beetle Goysians, yet another classic alien species return. He expresses his idealistic view of the Federation and offers to help. I know, so dreamy. Yes. <laughs> Poor Cal. So Cal sets to work on repairing and utilizing a programmable matter using his magic wand, the same material that made up Sahil's fancy space bed in the previous episode. And it makes uh, Tilly a little crazy. Wow, you're really good at that. Yes. Oh, look at that. What are you doing? She, and he's like, he looks at her like, this is like an Etch-A-Sketch to me, lady. What are you talking about? <laughs> Echoing uh, Sahil's admiration of Starfleet, the Gordon bonds with Tilly just before the villainous sort of beams in with the aura of an ancient gunslinger. Oh, yeah. They even show them with their feet. They yes. always show you walking in. It's either bursting through the door or it's watching their boots. It was yeah. kind of a boot-heavy episode. They didn't have any guts on theirs, though. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> Keen to discover his temporally displaced origin, the oppressive courier murders Cal and speaks in a dialect, a dialect known as Pigeon, which he's kind of clever, this guy. He knows anybody would know what Pigeon is, so they're definitely out of place. Right. Didn't take him long to figure it out. Yeah, now that Referring weapon to- that he had sure lo- reminded me of the old sawed-off shotgun from the Western yeah, days. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And it had such a, a slow-working effect, too. I wonder if it was derived from a tool, like a some type of mining. Well, they are a bunch of miners, you know, that would just cut away at rock. Right. And they just turned it into a weapon instead. Now, that's very possible, because it huh? seemed to have a couple of different settings. <coughs> Giorgio's just has a very yeah. high tolerance for pain, because he was able to kill Cal with an extended blast, yeah. where he didn't really <clears throat> it, get to do that with Giorgio. And it kind of, it burned him, too, and he continued to burn. Yeah, afterwards. Yeah. Which is kind of gross. Guy's lying there, and got a little smoke rising from him still in embers. At least no one went over to warm their hands by him. Yeah. <laughs> that stinker Zara referring to the Federation as Vedrash. And he plans to send Tilly into a perilous night to attain the Dilithium from Discovery. However, the courier is interrupted by Giorgio, who snuck off the starship to keep tabs on a recon mission. Of course she did. If we refer to that AV article again, I know. What's his name? I'll look it up in just to say Hank. No, Zach. Sorry. Sorry, Zach. He also noticed that... Um, give me a second here, Steve, while I collect my thoughts. Oh, Zach noticed that it was kind of a narrative shortcut. They could have given diplomacy a chance and see. I mean, this was a a good Saru episode. Oh, where he really absolutely. showed off leadership chops. Yeah, and we learned more about his biology. I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was kind of a short, but in keeping with the Western type of theme, she did show up in the nick of time, which always happens in Westerns. (laughs) (laughs) So the Terran effortlessly tears into Zara with verbal jabs before resorting to more violent measures to dispatch his accomplices. Yeah, a little wink and a nod, and it just sends her her off to to beat the crap out of everybody. Amazing. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I love it when she drips with acid from that sly tongue of her. She's so quick with the insults. Yes. <laughs> and she always gives that focused look. She considered being hit with Zara's agony beam there several times to foreplay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we also got to witness Saru subdue the lead antagonist with his threat ganglia turned badass projectile launcher. I was trying to think of a, you know, how in the Mandalorian, what was it, whistling birds? Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> badass projectile launchers. Yeah, I don't know. Stinging pins? I don't know. Yeah. I'll, I'll try and think of something for it. If it's not whistling birds, it's like flying porcupine. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Georgiou and Saru grapple over the notion of executing Zara, but the Kelpian's ethics overcome the terror vengeful spurred and impresses Cal's comrade. Or was that his brother? Was that his brother? That was his Osir? brother. Yeah, Osir. Was yeah, okay. Brother. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Zara comes in and goes, how's the family? Ouch, yeah. what a jerk. <laughs> After banishing Zara from the settlement, Osir presents Saru with personal transporters, much like the one that fascinated Burnham on Hema, so that the visitors from the past could safely return to Discovery. Wow, that was a nice little secret. Yes. <laughs> and Saru's reaction was like, okay, I don't yeah. know what to think about about this, but thank you very much. Yeah, uh, what we we wondered in our first episode of this season how a personal transporter works. Right but now that we now we know it looks like a Mars bar. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I still don't know how it works. No, but whatever. Don't squeeze it too hard. Don't put it in your pocket because it might melt chocolate all over you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we go back to the Discovery, and we see Stimmets courageously battling through his injuries to replace a damaged circuit with Reno's treasured reassurances 
<laughs> Dammit's restores Discovery's main power. Yeah, I'm glad Paul was there to, to learn his new nickname. I can't wait till he uses it. Oh, I know. <laughs> Bobcat, don't call me that. Never call me Bobcat again. Oh, I will. <laughs> so the away team returns to install their recently repaired equipment and activate the majority of the vessel's primary system. Unfortunately, the parasitic ice is closing in all around them and the bridge crew struggles to break the ship free from the surface. And out of nowhere, sensors detect a potentially hostile starship approaching. I wonder why they thought it was hostile. Well, they didn't know what it was. So that's like like Jin there. Zara had other ships in his crew that could come after him. Maybe if it was really hostile, it'd come in shooting, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, cause, see, it's coming away. I, I think Reese there jumped the gun a little. Enemy, enemy vessel. How do you know it's enemy vessel? Exactly. Relax. <laughs> I mean, it added to tension. It was a great sequence. Oh the yeah, special effects were fantastic. Yes, they were because the new arrival pulls Discovery out of its grave situation with the tractor beam and hails the star. Fleet crew, and they don't know what to do. Unsure of what to expect, Saru orders Lieutenant Bryce to open a channel. And tension ravages the bridge until, oh, it's just Michael Burnham on the yeah. screen <laughs> with really long hair. Very stylish. <laughs> yeah. And cathartic transmission brings a gleam to everyone's eyes. Yes, even Giorgio's. Mm. And Burnham divulges that she had landed a year prior to her friends. Yay, she's back. Well, at least that didn't take too long. Again, right. they both got their episodes and now they're together again. We didn't get a glimpse of the ship she was using, though. I don't think it was uh, books. I mean, yeah, it could have been. I'm almost positive it was books. Yeah, okay. And we get one shot of her doing courier work, I guess, because she got something yeah. from this alien, and I'm not sure if it was, was it one of those personal transporters or what? I don't know. I didn't catch it. Exactly mm. what it was. Well, it makes, make it out. makes sense. Yeah, uh, to, you know, if she's going to be there a year ahead of her crew and hooking up with Book there. So she might as well, she's probably joined the effort to protect endangered species, et cetera. Right. Yeah. More than but she, yeah, you'd think she'd have time to find if the, if the Federation is out there. <laughs> two of them, that she would be able to locate them too. But I, maybe she just can't stray too far from her sector right. in the galaxy. Yeah, it's yeah. possible. Now, at first I kind of <laughs> thought, well, maybe this was a hint that basically led her to the discovery, but there just wasn't enough time to see something show up like that that would say, oh, discovery's here. And besides, she still yeah. had her short hair. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder who does her hair for. Probably, probably book. <laughs> God. You know what, Steve? When she appeared on the screen, uh, Saru's like, uh, you look, and I thought she's, well, I'm pregnant. <laughs> I'm pregnant. Oh, I wanted to see the look on everyone's face. Oh, that <laughs> on the bridge. been amazing. Oh, that <laughs> that would have been classic. So you want to get to some Easter eggs? Let's do it. All right. In 2257, the NCIA-93 used a graviton beam to close a micro wormhole that enabled the Red Angel to time travel. If we look back on the episode Discovery, The Red Angel, yep. a graviton beam could be emitted through a starship's deflector dish. This was implemented on board the USS Voyager in 2374, when seven of nine modified Voyager's navigational controls to allow the deflector to emit a resonant graviton beam that opened up portal to fluidic space that was one of my favorites yes. i love fluidic space <laughs> what was it species 8742 was it i can't remember yeah that was the essay i wish they hadn't defanged those guys that would have been a great fight yes it 
They were kicking Borg ass. Yes. <laughs> so faced with also faced with the crash landing, the U.S. discovery on on a planet in 3189, Commander Seru ordered uh, Jin Reese to fire graviton beams at the surface to lessen the force of the impact. Too bad the Enterprise crew never thought. Thought of doing that, considering how many times they've crashed on planets. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like once a year, it turned into. We've got a note on rubidium is an element found in crystalline form used in subcutaneous transponders. It also be used to emit a powerful laser beam. Hmm. We'll probably see more rubidium in the future. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Another Easter egg is from Kirk and Spock. And while they were imprisoned in Echos in 2268, these are all star dates. I hope you understand, everyone. Spock used rubidium crystals from the transponders implanted in their arms to improvise a crude makeshift and primitive laser cutting torch to escape. And that was from the original series, Patterns of Force. Very James Bond-ish. Yes. <laughs> and even though, uh, here's one, even though the guy cleaned the the, <laughs> the the cube revealed his name is Gene, after Reno called him Hazmat, he was still credited as Ensign Hazmat. <laughs> I have a name, you know, it's Jean. Yep, don't care. I've already forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was a little tough for her. <laughs> so dismissive. The USS Discovery's crew complement was established as 136 in Choose Your Pain, with 88 remaining, at least one dead following the transit through the wormhole. Approximately 47 must have decided to remain aboard the USS Enterprise in such sweet sorrow. Think so, Steve? They must have. I guess so. You know, unless we find out that more people died on the through the wormhole, but... I wonder if we'll get an answer when the episode, I mean, the, the series comes around of Strange New World comes around. Right. Uh, anyway, the Cordonites or Cor- Coridans are a humanoid species from the Dilithium-rich Federation planet Coridan, which is in the Alpha Quadrant. And the Coridites, <laughs> I'm going to trip over this one all the time. <laughs> the Coridanites, there you go, traded with the Orions for centuries prior to 2155. And we learned that from the Enterprise episode Demons. In 2151, Coridan had a population of 3 billion with the the uh, majority living in several cities in the equatorial region. The planet was known for having the largest shipyard in the sector, building advanced warp-capable vessels, some of which were rumored to reach warp 7. Didn't know who was it that uh, reached warp 9. Was that uh, the next generation when they pushed it to 9? Yeah. Uh, and then they realized they were ruining space. Yeah. <laughs> However, the planet was also embroiled in an internal conflict between the government backed by the Vulcan High Command and rebel forces. It secretly supported the Andorian Empire. The Vulcan agenda was to keep the planet's chancellorship stable while the Tau Sedai Accords prohibited any Andoran presence on the planet, which in turn assured Coradan's dilithium exports to Vulcan. Well, that sounds logical, but rather selfish or underhanded. Oh, well, yeah, that's the Vulcans for you. Yeah, yeah. And it all makes it kind of makes sense why these miners are not on Coradan anymore. Because <laughs> uh, I'm sure their planet probably exploded much worse than uh, the colony did. Boy, I wonder. Anyway, Chancellor Caleb invited Captain Jonathan Archer and T'Pol of the NX-class Enterprise to visit the planet, and they were captured by rebels and held for ransom. As a result, Commando Force led by Sopek, the Vulcan senior officer of the sector, as well as the Andorian Imperial Guard led by Shran, who was thereby violating the accords of the Tau Ceti Accords, came to the rescue, and that was from the episode Shadow of Hajem. Love Shran. Really, <laughs> huh? I love Shran. Oh, Shran, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
in instar date year 2152 the cordonites we got a lot of cordonite information for you yeah, that- this was definitely yeah. one of those species that had a very long history in star trek <laughs> yeah they were represented at the interspecies medical exchange conference on Deccan d3 at one point the cordon genome conference was scheduled to 1400 hours and changed to the auditorium six was it in San Diego at Comic Con? Yeah. <laughs> this was this was announced on a speaker system inside the conference building, and that was from the Enterprise episode Stigma. So yeah, we got a lot of information on them. In twenty one fifty five, Coradan took part in talks on Earth to form a coalition of planets. Here, the Coradanites rejected the Telluride proposal of a trade embargo against the Orion Syndicate. The Coradanite representative emphasized this people's longstanding tra- trade relations with the Orions and claimed that the accusations of Orions attacking Telluride freighters was slander. That was from the Enterprise Demons. There was uh, also the Babel Conference of 2268 was to consider whether to allow Coradan's admission into the United Federation of Planets. Coradan was considered underpopulated at the time, making the planets susceptible to illegal mining operations, e.g. from the Orions. Of course. Of course. Federation membership would provide the planet with protection under the interstellar law, which is from the original series Journey to Babel, and the anime series The Pirates of Orion. I should revisit that. Mining operations were maintained by the Orions and Tellarites, among others, a concern that led some to think they should be denied Federation membership. Who thought there'd be so much information behind these people? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Despite the Orion Syndicate making an initial attempt to sabotage the Babel Conference, Ambassador Sarica Vulcan spoke in favor of the admittance and was given credit for passage of the measure. Gordon joined the Federation the same year from the episode Journey to Babel and the Next Generation episode Sarek, one of my favorite all-time characters, by the way. Yeah. Here's a note from the year 2374, start date 2374. During the Dominion War, Gordon's Dilithian mines were attacked by the Jem Hadar, and as they made the planet a strategically important target, and that was from Deep Space Nine, one little ship. Yeah, that was a really good episode. I happened to catch that just a couple of days ago. And oh, really? Yeah, really a good episode. Oh, we couldn't the, figure out why the um, the Jem Hadar was wanting this ship that they had managed to get a hold of. And it ends up being that there was a changeling on it, but it happened mm-hmm. to die before the Dominion could get their hands on it. Mm-hmm. The Cordenites were previously seen in Enterprise Shadow of Pajerm and Demons. These two episodes are presented two radically different appearances for the species far from home. Use the appearances that we now see from, uh, we saw from the episode Shadows of Pajerm. <laughs> and humorously, Tilly, also in this episode, she re- cites Regulation 256.15, Officers Shall Show Professional Behavior at All Times, from the original series novel, Vulcan's Forge. I thought she was just faking it. She just came up with something. Right. <laughs> the first time, I'm like, yeah, I was going to say, you made that up. Yeah. <laughs> but it worked. And anyway, Zara uses the, the V. Daresh, first used in the Star Trek short takes episode Calypso. According to Calypso writer Michael Shabon, V. Daresh is a syncope, a type of lingua linguistic distortion of federation how they got that i don't know but okay yeah <laughs> <You> say so <laughs> oh we mentioned uh saru's quills it, it's not entirely clear what they do they don't appear to have a lethal poison as rs survive being hit by them but they uh they definitely <laughs> they immobilize maybe i'm sure they sting like hell <laughs> yes <laughs> nothing else <laughs> yeah what if we got him in the rear end it was he was trying to ride out of there ow <laughs> burnham establishes that a, a year has passed since the events of that hope of you Part 1 is set 3188, placing 
Disney episode in 3189. Aha! Yes. So I had one more note I wanted to discuss. And since we don't know about what is warp capable ship or what powers it, and we're wondering about dilithium, I had wondered to Steve off air if something in time and space has made dilithium unstable. And then if that's true, if that's true, I wonder if it would that would render the dilithium unstable on Discovery. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very possible. The counter theory to that that Steve elucidated was well, maybe just something happened to dilithium over time, a long time. Right. And I think in our, our first episode of the year, we discussed that shouldn't have that have been picked up by the sensors aboard the ship. Well, maybe not. They, you know, computers look for what they look for, but if they have artificial intelligence, it shouldn't uh, have surprised them. But yeah, so that makes me feel as though there's something about time space that changed. We'll uh, see. It's also very possible that mm. this could lead, lead right back to your theory from the last episode that it's all Burnham's fault. It's all her fault that she changed time and space, which is the same which thing. Changed the dilithium. Yeah. And that's why they called the burn after her. Of course, yeah. she. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Hopefully, in the next episode, we'll get a little bit more backstory on the burn and exactly what it caused and how it happened. But who knows? <laughs> yeah. I'm interested to see how book. Relates to the rest of the crew, too. Oh, yeah. That will be a lot of fun to see. Well, as always, we've got some feedback from our friend Fred from the Netherlands. So let's hear what he thinks of this episode. Hello, Steve and Dave. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 2. As the first episode of this season, really very nice. And I also liked that there was, as in the first episode, no double storyline. So now we focus on the discovery. Cool visuals, very nice, this western setup. Cool fights. And I'm happy we find out that they really meet at the end of this episode, meaning Michael Burnham and the rest of the crew. I'm very curious if we get a lot of flashbacks from Burnham's life the last year of course if you see the ready room with with bill wheaton and you see a little bit of a scene of next week we get a kind of summary what she did in one year but i really wonder if this will be more extensively portrayed nice interaction between georgiou and saru and if we listen to the ready room that will continue throughout the season Okay, that was all for now. I hope I can keep up with giving a little bit of feedback because there are many other shows I am going to watch and give feedback for as The Mandalorian is coming up and, for instance, His Dark Materials. And, of course, I have my regular podcast with Dave and Wayne and they are currently doing Stargate SG-1, a series i never seen before. Greets, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. Well, Fred, I do agree that the Giorgio and Saru uh, interactions was great because at one time Saru wouldn't have stood up to her like he did. She even got in another Kelpian insult earlier yes, in the episode. Wow. At least she didn't tie a napkin around her, her neck <laughs> and give him a look like he's food. Yeah. <laughs> Will that continue, though? Is she going to continue to antagonize oh, uh, Saru? I think she will for as yeah. long as she's in 2189. I mean, 3189, I'm sure she will do. I mean, that's what she does best. Yeah. But with yeah. I mean, she'll that, do it with Burnham even. <laughs> It, it, uh, it'll have to come to a head, though. Oh, yeah. And she also continues to antagonize Tilly. Yes. 
somebody's going to have a problem with that. Yep. I, I would I think, think yeah, we, we heard that the time travel had been outlawed. I'm sure <laughs> that will be what Giorgio discovers. And that yeah. may be what she uses to get back to the 23rd century is some time travel equipment that we shall see. Also, yeah. I really love the, the way the Saru and Tilly relation has progressed. It, it, he's almost become a father to her. Yeah, he does have a calming influence. And when he, when he said to her, I'm going to need you to stow, he didn't, not exactly, to stow away her fare. And he said, like, are you with me? And she's like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on each and every episode this season and looking forward to interacting on social media with all the great fans. So how can the fans interact with us, Dave? They can go to www.fangirlzone.com and click on the contact link where you'll find several ways to contact us via email or through social media on twitter good old steve is that steve Sawyer. <laughs> i got it backward good old steve is that Sawyer steve and uh not so good dave is that at the real underscore id underscore dave because i wanted to make it a, i wanted to make it a mouthful that's why yes. <laughs> please review and rate us on itunes and every other platform you're listening to us on as good ratings and reviews help other fans of the show find us as there are quite a few star trek discovery podcasts out there tell your friends and we do hope you're enjoying our podcast and don't forget to check out the other great fangirls own podcast the third episode is on october 29th and is titled people of earth so until then remember this is chief engineer steve back at you bobcat bobcat i don't know i'm on drug <laughs> and this is red shirt dave and i have the psychic dominance of a kitten no a bobcat <laughs> 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 <laughs>